So we are continuing our look at 1 John. So if you want to turn with me to 1 John, I'm going to be reading out of 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. So this is 1 John 2, 7 through 17. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. This is true in him and in you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and, is, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, and loves the, uh, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a chance to study it, to focus on it. And Lord, we ask that you help us to do that today. Lord, we ask that you help us. Help us as we study this passage from 1 John. Help us to see how it should affect the way we live today. Help us, Lord, to understand it in a way that goes far beyond the words and concepts but touches our spirit. Something that only you can do with your spirit, Lord. Thank you, God, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so a little bit of context kind of help us, remind us of, of where we are and what 1 John is doing. 
Uh, 1 John, really, uh, unlike some of the other things we've read, it's not really written like a letter. It's written almost like a poetic sermon. And it is appears to be written to encourage a local congregation of church uh, that's, that's dealing with some struggle with a conflict, uh, with some leaving the faith. So, um, so the, the author here, John, repeats and emphasizes two main points throughout this whole, uh, the whole book. Uh, we've already touched on them already. We're going to touch on them again, and then we will touch on them as we read through the rest of the book. And those two concepts are light and love. God is light. God is love. So those are going to be two concepts that uh, the, the author here, John, is going to circle back around and touch in some different way and emphasize in a different way and give a different example to. So he's going to go back and forth between light and love, light and love. Light and love. So um, we start off here with verse 7, and he is addressing beloved. So he's addressing believers, and, and not just any believers, but believers that he loves, right? He, he, these are his, uh, he has a connection with this body, with this, this church that he's kind of preaching this sermon to. So, um, you know, remember in, in, Jude, we saw beloved over and over and over, and this is a continuation of that theme. So, beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And an old commandment is uh, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. All right, so we have an interesting little thing here, right? Because he says, hey, I'm not giving you a new commandment. This is an old commandment. And then he turns right around at the very next verse and says, but hey, I'm kind of giving you a new commandment. So you've got this weird little uh, thing here um, I've even, in researching this and, and, and studying, um, there are some uh, weird uh, attacks that uh, non-believers use this passage to talk about how inconsistent Scripture is, that within just one verse of each other, you know, it's, it's totally incoherent. It's clearly not what he was talking about here, okay? He is talking about this idea of I've given that what he's talking about is love, right? This concept of love and light. So this is nothing new. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 17. So this is deep in the Old Testament, okay? Early, early, early times. Leviticus 19, 17 reads, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what John is telling his, the, the audience here for this sermon is, look, 
You need to love each other. Pretty simple, right? Pretty simple message. He's saying, look, this is old. This is old stuff. You need to love each other. But it's also kind of new. It's kind of new. And he is, I think, referring very directly to um, this passage in Matthew. We're going to read it from Matthew. So um, Jesus is, is talking with people. And he's being referred to, uh, the, so the, the, the crowd is kind of is challenging him with a question. And, and the question, this is Matthew 22, verse 36. A teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And this is actually, I, the, the thought process may not have been uh, genuine from their perspective, because we kind of have the... Jesus was often, people were trying to trick him into saying something that would be controversial and would, would ruin his reputation. So the motive may not have been great, but this is actually a wonderful question, right? This is a great question to ask Jesus. Hey, Jesus, help us set our priorities. What is the greatest commandment? Like, let's put that on top and we can focus on really making sure we do that one. So Jesus answers him in verse 37. Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Question asked, question answered, right? Jesus doesn't always do that. A lot of times he answers with a question and he's kind of um, pushes things back onto his audience. He, in this situation, he is very, very clear. Hey, this is the greatest commandment. But then he continues, right? He does something, you know, kind of what we kind of come to expect from Jesus is he, he changes the question. He answers, he answers the, their question in a way different than they were expecting, right? He gave them that one, but then he said, and the second, which they didn't ask about, but he's saying, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus took the entire Old Testament, condensed it into crib notes. Those of you who are in college may appreciate that. And said, okay, if you, you, know, you should read the Old Testament. I'm not encouraging anyone not to read the Old Testament. But if you had to skip on reading the Old Testament, if you had to just get the, the very, very most important piece, this is it. Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two things, golden. Those are, that's, that's, what, that's what Jesus is saying. These are the top two priorities. Do these things. You, if you neglect everything else, do this. Jesus, in this, by explaining this, he also connects these two commandments together. And it becomes clear that our love for each other flows from and is an indication of our love for God. Right? Because he says, here's this thing, you love God. And then, by the way, love your neighbor. It's, and he uses the words, um, and the second is like it. Right? So he's connecting them in, in like kind. So 
So this is Jesus's comments on old. This, so this, this concept of loving your brother and not hating each other, they're old, they're old. But the second verse in, in verse 8 we talk about, but it's also new. So let's look at John 23. John chapter 23, verse 34. And this is where Jesus is, is sitting with his disciples. They're at the Last Supper They've just eaten a meal together for the last time. And he is saying goodbye to them. And on his way out, he is going to give them something new. So, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. So, wait a minute. I don't know I'm stopping halfway through the verse there, but that's old, right? Love one another. We've been talking about that. It's been there since... Leviticus. No, this is, this is his answer to that. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus is, so that, it, the, that you love one another is an old, old principle. Right? Old Testament goes back forever. Love your neighbor as, you know, love your neighbor. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And we kind of think of that being the greatest standard, right? Like, I love me. So if I'm going to love my neighbor like I love me, that's a pretty high standard. But Jesus took it to another level with this new commandment. He, it's the same kind, right? Love one another, same commandment, but he changed what the expectation was. No longer is it love your neighbor as yourself. It's love your neighbor as I have loved you. Wow. That's a whole new ball game. Right? Now, don't forget, don't let this miss, you know, don't miss this, that he is saying this to a group of men and he is about to go suffer Torture and death for them. He's a, literally about to become sin for these men. That's how much he loved them. So, so, so not only did Jesus raise the bar of expectation of how much you're supposed to love each other, but he also put this verse 35, that caveat in there and said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus said, you should love, I'm going to raise the bar, and then I'm going to put a, a grading system in there that other people are going to get to the non-believers, the world, will judge if you're a disciple of mine. I listened to a, a pastor, I wish I could remember who it was, but he talked about how when he was asked, are you a Christian? He would say, I don't get to decide that. And people go, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I read this and I see that only, only unbelievers get to decide if I'm a disciple of God. Now, I think he was probably doing that a little bit for theatrical effect, right? To prove a point. But I think it's a powerful point. 
how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ will be how all people know we are Jesus' disciples. So, what would such a love look like? What would that look like? What would loving someone the way Jesus loved us, what would it look like? Well, there's a couple things that come to mind. I, I think of... Uh, my children often, when I think about these lessons and, and ways to think of things. And I think about how my kids would love to eat cake all the time, right? Like you sweets, you'd love to have sweets or ice cream. You'd love to do that all the time. Well, if I loved my kids, would I give them what they wanted all the time? No, that wouldn't be what's best for them. Because we aren't really good judges of what's best for us. We can judge what we want, but we very rarely can figure out what we need. So, and what's best for us. So that's, so just being Santa Claus, right, and giving everyone what they want all the time, that's not love. Quite honestly, that's often a way to destroy people. Giving them everything they want when they want it. So, okay, if it's not that, if it's not giving people everything they want when they want it, what does love look like? Well, love is sacrificial, right? Jesus died for us. The, the greatest sacrifice that we could ever imagine. You know, Jesus also, uh, we, we see in Scripture where the, the lesson that someone who's willing to die for someone that, that even the world sees that and says that's, that's love, right? To love someone so much to be willing to die for them. So sacrificial, that's, that's one of the characteristics of this love or one way that this love could be expressed, right? It, it's it's um, edifying. It, it, it improves the person. It helps the person. Right? So that's, that's another thing. It's helpful. It's edifying. And, and there's lots of different adjectives. I don't, I don't want to go into all of them, but I just want to go into one more that might actually be a little harder or maybe not as obvious and, and, or not as clear. And that is that the love needs to be obvious. It needs to be apparent. And you may think, well, I mean, that doesn't, what does that matter? Well, if, if we are told that by this all people will know that we are the disciples, if we love one another, if we have love for one another, what good is that if we hide it? Right? If Dan helps me out, but that help is never seen by anyone, right? If he loves me and that love is never shown publicly, well, then how can the world know? And this runs counter to the way we think about a lot of things, right? Because we think of, well, we should help each other and, um, 
And there's scripture, right? The, the left hand shouldn't know what the right hand's doing, right? There's concepts of, of, of um, kind of hiding your help sometimes. So that's definitely there. That's definitely a biblical principle, right? But also, there also needs to be, there's a time for that, maybe be a good way to put that. But how can the world know if we don't show each other we love each other? You know, again, I think about my family. I may love Emma, but if I never show her that I love her, right, if it's not obvious to the world, then I'm doing it wrong. And that's kind of what, what my thought is here for, you know, how can the world see that we love each other if we're hiding it? So our, our love should be so obvious that it just kind of boils over, right? It just kind of spills over into our lives. So, so what would the world see, or maybe what does the world see in your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? What's, what's the practical... Just think, of your, think to yourself, what's the practical, how does the world see my love? This can be pretty convicting. Right? We live in a society that values individualism and really focuses on, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And, and we've got to... We've got to value biblical truth above cultural mores, cultural norms. We've got to value biblical truth. So this isn't a this what Jesus these these this new commandment that that Jesus gave his followers that gets passed on to us. This isn't, Jesus didn't say, as long as it's convenient with your culture, as long as it's consistent with your culture. Right? Jesus isn't saying, well, as long as, you've got the, as long as you've got the personality for it, you should do this commandment. No. Jesus is setting a standard. He's giving us a commandment, and he's not only giving it to us, he's going to tell us the world will judge you by this. How, how will, you know, they will know you're my follower by this. So if they don't know, if the world can't see you loving your brothers and sisters, you can make a logical jump that maybe you're not a disciple of Jesus. So, so we've, we've got to really fight, right? We've got, to, uh, we've got to fight to say, okay, how do I live up this commandment? I'm not saying this is easy, right? Because we've got to balance this between trying to be showy about what we do, how we love each other. We've got to try to make sure it's genuine. We've got to make sure we're not being Santa Claus and... and just giving people kind of what we think they want. 
Jesus didn't say this was going to be easy. He just said, this is a new commandment I'm giving you. So, my challenge to you is kind of look around and see how, how are you loving the brothers and sisters in this room? And, and is that love obvious to the world? So, verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. So this is very, very clear here. There's light and there's dark. There's love and there's hate. There's no room for gray in this. Colossians 1, verse 10 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we're, we're, we're moving, hey, we're, we're doing good stuff, right? We're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. We're fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God. So I'm starting to get a little nervous because I don't know if I can do this, Okay? So then pick back up there in verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So, that first part of Colossians 1, 10 through, or verse 10 sets this really high standard that we're supposed to do and then it comes in and says, but don't worry, God's going to do this for you. It's through His strength this is going to happen. He is the one who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So although it's clear that there is light and dark, it's not on you to be good enough to be in the light, to deserve to be in the light. You may hear me uh, talk about uh, works-based theology and how that's a, a works-based doctrine is is, I think, a very scary thing. But the reality is, we do, I do have a works-based theology. It's just not my work. I just didn't do the work, right? Jesus did the work. So, so this, is, this is what, you know, this, this difference between the light and the dark, it's important to keep that in mind. All right, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So just continuing this idea that there's only two states. There's being in the light and being in the darkness. 
So, so at this point, John's about to kind of pivot in this, this line of thought. He's setting up this idea of light and dark, hate and love. So, you know, we're, we're lining that stuff up. And now he's going to pivot here in the rest of this passage. And he's talking about the stages of Christian maturity. Because even though there is light and dark, there are stages of maturity inside the light. And then through verses 12 through 14, really through, um, yeah, through 12 uh, through 14, we see this. He's referring to the children, hey, little children. Now, this is not talking about, hey, this part of the sermon is for little kids. And the next part where he says, and I'm writing to you fathers. He's not writing to the, the men who have children. He is writing to the people. He sets up this concept of three different stages of spiritual maturity. There are children, there are young men, and there are fathers. And he's kind of mimicking the way that you know, he's using human maturity to teach about spiritual maturity. And this isn't a, a unique concept, uh, shouldn't be, for us. Uh, it's not exclusive to 1 John. In 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we see the exact same thing. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, but you were not, uh, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while you were, uh, while, uh, excuse me, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So here we see this, um, this growth and this concept of spiritual maturity. If you see no growth, spiritually, then maybe you're not being fed. That's one, one possibility. It's also possible that you're just not maturing. I, I've said this before, kind of an observation of my own, that a false convert and an immature Christian look almost the same. It's very hard to dis- discern the two. Now, hopefully, as time passes, that immature Christian begins to mature. And it becomes clear, oh, this person's growing in Christ, right? Where the false convert won't. Usually falling away. So, so let's think about this. Then if, it's, if we're talking about maturity... Um, so first of all, what we learned from this passage in 1 Corinthians is it's possible to be a true Christian and stay a baby for a long time. And that should be scary to us. It should be, um, I don't know if scary is the right term. It should be concerning. Because who wants to stay a baby in our faith, right? We all want to mature. We want to grow. We want to be of more value. You know, as, as my children mature and get older, they become more and more valuable to have around, 
right? And you get to a point where you can say, hey, Ryan, I just need you to go solve this problem. I don't know what, I don't know what needs to happen. I just need you to go fix it. Rusty was talking about that today in, in prayer request time, about how just, you know, our, our children, we see them grow up, right? And we see their value and we get more out of them than they realize, not just in a, a work way, but in emotional growth way. We see them, we, we get encouragement from them, we get blessed by them. And then, you know, this is hard on parents because then they leave. And that, that, that human that we poured our lives into, that we loved and loved us and we watched grow and we taught them and then they leave. But that's the way it's made to work, right? Because then they're going to go off and they're going to have their own families and they're going to grow their own children. And then we get to be grandparents. So, so this maturing is a good thing. So we, want to, we, don't, we don't just want to mature in our physical lives. We want to mature as Christians. And we want to encourage each other to mature. And there's some things that... Um, that we've got to watch out for or can prevent that growth and that maturity. And I hate to say this, but I think sometimes the modern church can actually be something that can prevent people from growing. And that's a sad thing for me. But in a modern church... Far too often, the church, the bride of Christ, is an observer. Worship is about observing. It's about an experience. It's not about a relationship. Church teaching is milk all the time. And hey, look, milk's easy to digest. Right? That's why we give it to babies. It's easy to digest. It doesn't take a lot of work. But here in 1 Corinthians, we see that this, this almost lament, like I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not yet ready. Like we can feel the lament, like come on, grow up. You know, another thing that, that kind of comes and can stunt your growth is a lack of biblical, personal biblical study. And I get it. We're all busy. But are we? Because we can always find time to do the things we want to do. So biblical study is important. Being in the Word you know, wonderful prayer request from this morning was, you know, prayer that the Holy Spirit would teach us through the Word. We don't have to rely on a Bible study. We don't have to have a sermon series we're listening to. Hopefully these, you know, hopefully Sunday morning service and these sermons that, that us as elders prepare have value and help you. But this is not the only time you should be learning. I would love it if you come in and go, hey, I learned a little bit from the sermon, but 
and I'm learning more every day in my Bible study. I'm, I'll take that. That's victory. But often, our, our modern understanding of church and, and even uh, makes us lean back and become observers. So yes, I'll be there. I'll listen to the sermon. I'll be like, I may even take notes, be locked in. But then I'm done till a week later. And then I'll come back and I'll get a little bit more. Oh, we've got to be feeding ourselves daily on the bread of the word. All right, so then we see through, oh, and then one other thing is that the lack of an active prayer life. And I'm just going to be really honest and really transparent here and really personal. It is easy for me. I, I am, uh, my mind is always going. I think it has to do with attention deficit disorder and other things going on in my personality. So I, I, I love to be thinking about stuff all the time. So I listen to podcasts when I'm out working, when I'm mowing, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm listening to stuff. Man, update on Ukrainian-Russian war. Oh, this sermon series I'm listening to over here. Oh, this book you know, that I'm listening to, this audio book about the Third Republic and the fall of the French Third Republic. These, I'm doing all this stuff, right? Some of this for work. I'm listening to kind of commission meetings that I missed or haven't listened to yet. So I'll have that in audio going while I'm doing stuff. I'm always engaged. I always have something kind of going in. And the problem with that, and I hope that this is um, relatable to some other people. Maybe this is just for me. But the problem with that is I don't leave time for my mind to kind of shift into prayer. So I'm kind of so engaged that I will not fall into prayer. And then when I make a certain time, like I'm going to pray, I'm going to have this time in my schedule, in my life, my routine, I'm going to pray a little bit. I'm limiting that prayer to just that little bit of time. Where when I don't, when I'm not engaged, I find myself praying throughout the day, right? Get in the car, start driving, realize, oh, I'm gonna, I need to pray for the other elders. So I'm going to start praying for families. You know, we as elders uh, make a commitment to each other and to you guys that we pray for you every day. And look, that, there's a lot of names I mean, this isn't, it's not a, oh, pray for the religious, pray for the bobos, pray for the shop. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about praying for you name by name. I pray for David. And I pray that God will grow David and he'll protect him. And I get distracted. How many prayers don't we pray? Because we're distracted. How many blessings do we miss because we're moving too fast? Or we've got something else we've got to get done?
So that's something that can, that can prevent our maturity as Christians. So, so verse 15, 16, and 17 tells us the same thing, right? It's this concept of, of, uh, of being separate from the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but from, this, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with the desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this is just a, a, a lining up. Right? This is, again, going back to this idea that there is light and there is dark. There's, there's two paths. That's it. You can't keep your feet in both of them. So you can't love the things of the world. It, this is a reminder. This is not our home. This is not our true home. And we've got to remember to put the things that matter above the things that don't. It's also easy in our society to be confused about what's good and what's not. This shouldn't surprise us. Isaiah 5 verse 20 tells us, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There are people that call themselves pastors this morning that are encouraging horrific sin. And in the face of a, a crowd that wants to hear this, they are giving the message that, that that crowd wants to hear. Some are doing it out of greed, other out of, others out of being misled themselves. We have to constantly keep watch over ourselves, men over your families, elders over the church, because we've got to protect. We've got to make sure that we are never calling evil good and good evil. But this means that we've got to be willing to offend people. Because there are plenty of people in this world that are fine as long as we don't call anything evil. Y'all do what you want to do. That's fine. You want to go have church Sunday and do a weird thing with the fruit of the vine and with bread. That's what's weird, but whatever. Y'all can do whatever you want to do. But the second we start saying, hey, this is evil, they have a real problem with us. Now, I, I say all of this, and again, I come back to the point of, man, Cody, you're setting a high bar here. You're setting a high standard. I, I'm not sure I can live up to that. Well, let me tell you, you can't. So we can just resolve that immediately. 
you are not going to live up to the standard that Jesus has set for us. Neither am I. But we can look at Romans 8, verses 30 and 31. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And for those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We have an immensely hard struggle. We have a struggle to do, to try to live up to what God has challenged us to do. The standard Jesus has set us. Love one another as Jesus loved us. We've got an immense battle on our hands. But we are not alone. Because if God is with us, who can be against us?